Hello everyone, and I hope you're doing well. I'm recording this sitting at my desk in my small English cottage, and we're getting high-speed internet in the village soon. So I apologise if you can hear the work people who are already digging up the street outside at 8am on a Saturday. Nonetheless, I'm very excited to share this new episode with you. Dr. Michelle LaRue is a research ecologist at the University of Minnesota. I probably need to get myself a cup of tea. I recorded this interview with Michelle during the holiday period over Skype, but before that I also had the opportunity to meet up with Michelle in London for a coffee. She's a fascinating and inspiring conservationist who has developed innovative research approaches, travelled the world, and taken her conservation science communications to an extremely impressive level. Michelle focuses on interdisciplinary tools such as GIS, that's Geographic Information System Mapping, and high-resolution satellite imagery to study the spatial and population dynamics of penguins, seals, cougars, and polar bears, species facing substantial conservation challenges as both the physical and social environments change across the world. She's also a science communicator and believes that making science accessible through approachability as a speaker is key to public engagement and science comprehension. In this episode, we cover her amazing wildlife experiences in the Antarctic and some of the lessons she has learned from mistakes or failures on fieldwork. We also discuss the innovative techniques she has been using to study Weddell seals and penguin species in the Antarctic and what her research is revealing about the drivers of change we're seeing in their populations. And she shares some of her tactics and techniques for undertaking science communications, including how to prepare for giving presentations. You can find out more about Michelle at drmichellelarue.com. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-L-A-R-U-E.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Michelle LaRue. And she also created the popular Cougar or Not hashtag, which runs every Friday. And I strongly recommend checking this out. This is because she's also the, the executive director of the Cougar Network, www.cougarnet.org, in the US, which we cover in the episode as well. And if you'd like to help Michelle with her research, then you can do so from your very own home. Visit www.tomnod.com, that's T-O-M-N-O-D.com, to help her search satellite imagery of the Antarctic for traces of Weddell seals, and contribute to our growing understanding of where they are and aren't found. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. Okay, um, well we'll get started then. Um, so I was wondering if you've uh, had any kind of wildlife or nature in your life over the past few days, even though it's been the holiday season. Oh man, have I had any wildlife or nature? Um, it has been so cold here in Minnesota. Um, I have kind of avoided going outside, <laughs> but um, so no. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. No, I took a I took a walk on Christmas Day, and it was like with the windshield, it was negative fifteen Fahrenheit, which wow. which is yeah, which is pretty darn cold. So there's I haven't really seen a whole lot of wildlife, unfortunately, over the last few days. So like the only animal I've really seen is my dog, <laughs> <Unfortunately>. <laughs> So no, but I wish I I wish I 
would have. Seen but I feel like that's pretty good getting in getting in some outdoors time on on Christmas Day itself. Yeah, well, I had to. I mean, it was it was so cold, and we'd been sitting, you know, inside basically all day and the day before because it was cold then too. It's like you know what, we're gonna bundle up, and we lasted for maybe fifteen minutes. <laughs> we had to come back in. <laughs> um. But obviously, I mean, I know you spend a lot of time in the field, but when you're when you're at your desk or in your office or whatever, how do you make sure that you do build time into your your normal day or your normal week when it's not the Christmas New Year period? To to get outside, build time. Yeah, to get outside. To get outside. Yeah. yeah. So um, it it's really nice. So the, at the University of Minnesota, there's a lot of green space, which is which is really great. And so on a on a typical day, um, I try as as much as I can to just get outside during the day and just kind of walk around um, in in Minneapolis. And so I'll just go for maybe a, a 20 minute walk or so, um, which is really lovely on like you know, a beautiful June day. It's, you know, maybe 75 degrees Fahrenheit. It's beautiful outside. Um, so I try to do that and I, and I do have to make sure I, I like force myself to do it because I, not that I don't want to, but I get so focused on what I'm doing sometimes that I forget to like (laughs) get up and walk around and stuff. Um, so I do, I do that. And then obviously, you know, I walk to and from the bus and, you know, walk the dog um, and then I, there's a really beautiful bike trail. Um, so when it's nice enough to ride a bike in Minnesota, um, there's a gorgeous bike trail that starts in my hometown and it goes for probably 40 miles or more. And so I'll ride, ride parts of that, which is really, really nice. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to, to get outside and to observe and walk around and obviously, and then not to mention all of the hiking trails and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just sort of kind of part of my routine, I think, is to to make sure to be outside, um, you know, kind of maintain that connection with the environment and with nature. Mm, I know what you mean. My my office, I'm very lucky, is based in a building that's in the middle of what's what is a nature reserve. But um, it's very easy to forget to actually get up from your desk, even at lunchtime and just go for a walk around it. Um, it's important to try and remind yourself to do that sort of thing. Um, so I wanted to ask, is that, um, is Minnesota where you grew up or did you grow up somewhere else? And when you were growing up, what role did nature and wildlife play during your childhood, if any? Yeah, so I grew up in this general vicinity. So, um, so Minnesota is a state in the northern, like central northern part of the continental United States. And I actually grew up in Wisconsin, which is just to the east. Um, so maybe like from where I live now, I actually only grew up maybe 15 miles away. So, so not very far. So I grew up in this general vicinity um, of the United States and being outside and you know, wildlife, nature has always been a part of my life since I can remember, basically. Um, I was really fortunate when I was a kid, we uh, we moved to kind of to the country, to the outskirts of, of our little town in Wisconsin, um, to, a, to a little hobby farm. And so I had uh, a, a pony when I was a little kid. Um, and then we ended up having a couple horses. And I was involved in a, a program called 4-H, which... Um, it's kind of a, how would I describe 4-H? It's kind of a, a, an organization, it's a youth organization to get kids involved with, um, you know, animals and, uh, you know, kind of showing animals and stuff. So you to kind of take ownership over um, some projects and stuff. And then there's a, a, a county fair at the end of, of your year. So you're prepping and learning and, and how to show animals and stuff like that. And then you have your final fair at the end of, of the year. 
Um, and so I was always involved with animals in that way. And, and given I was fortunate enough to have um, access to horses, I was outside all the time, riding on trails with my sister and our friend. And um, so it was just kind of second nature to me to just always be outside. And uh, it was just, it was a really, it was a really great opportunity to observe, you know, you're on, on top of a horse and you're kind of watching the way they are taking in the world and perceiving things. And you can really learn a lot about weather and, um, you know, the woods and things like that when you're, when you're on top of a horse, which is really, really pretty cool. So I had a lot of opportunity to learn and observe. And I think that was just really a foundational part of who I was when I was a kid. And so when I went into high school, um, I was obviously really interested in biology and things, and it just kind of continued to, to solidify for me. Like I never really wavered away from being in biology or the environment. It was just kind of a matter of what did I think would be the most interesting to, to study. Um, so yeah, definitely being outside was a, a, a thing for me when I was a kid. It, like I said, it was just second nature. I was just always happiest outside. Have you got a particular memory of a time when when you were out riding on horseback or maybe just out and you noticed, you know, you noticed some wildlife or there was there was something that particularly struck you in nature? Let's see. I don't mean like riding into branches, literally struck you. <laughs> yeah, well, I've done that before. <laughs> we, uh, we actually had a, a situation one time I was a little kid and, um, yeah, a friend of mine was in front of me and her, a branch came and smacked her in the face and she was... She, we were young and had braces and it caught her lip and that was really not, not fun. Oh, um, <laughs> so that was a, that was a situation. Um, but I think as far as, um, I'm just trying to think wildlife. Um, let me think for a moment if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, man, I'm just trying to think of all the of all the times I was on horseback. You know, we we did a lot of riding in the woods and things like that, but I don't ever really remember coming across uh, wildlife. Probably because we were being really loud and obnoxious. <laughs> probably scared away anything um, you know that that we would have come across. But um, but obviously, you know, in camping and things, coming across deer is probably white-tailed deer is probably the most common thing. Um, which is pretty fun. And, and, and actually just recently, so this wasn't really a childhood thing, but just recently I went to, um, the Cedar Creek long-term ecological research site and was kind of walking around there and saw some redheaded woodpeckers. And that was pretty cool. Um, cause I don't think I'd ever seen one in, in the wild before. So that was a really, a really fun experience just kind of watching them from afar. Um, but nice. yeah, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, like I said, I think when I was a kid, you know, being outside, we were, you know, we were on horses and stuff and we were probably yelling and laughing and stuff. And so any chance that wildlife might have had to uh, make themselves known, we probably scared them away. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a mix usually between some people who I speak to who have these real kind of standout moments where where they witness something in particular and other people who just had a real kind of outdoorsy childhood a friend who i spoke to recently for the podcast she grew up on a on a cork oak farm in southern spain and you know um remembers kind of collecting tadpoles and watching them grow up into frogs but was more just influenced by just you know being raised in such a kind of outdoor setting in general and that's that's gone on to influence the career that she's in now yeah yeah and i think that one of the i guess more um 
one of the memories that I, I am most fond of is I remember one time we wanted to go soap riding so badly. So we run down to the barn and I remember my mom telling us that we just couldn't go that day. And we were very confused. We're like, well, what, why not? And they're like, she's like, oh, I want you to just go and sit and watch the horses, which for a little kid who all she wants to do is just like go outside and be gone for hours. I was like, ah, this is torture. Um, but we did it. And I remember sitting on the fence post, just watching the horses graze. Um, and so while they weren't wildlife, it, it stuck with me because we really did start to pay attention to their mannerisms and watching them and watching, you know, how they, you know, swish their tails and, you know, how they move their ears around. And when the wind gets to be just a little bit, you know, picks up a little bit, they, you know, will snort or they'll start to pay attention. And so you really learn a lot just by watching them. I mean, those are things that you can't see if you weren't told to do that. And so I always thought that was really cool of my mom to, to kind of make us take a step back and appreciate the, you know, just the animals for, for who they, for who they were and, and, you know, just kind of watch them and observe. Um, and I always thought that was a, you know, at the time, I, I don't think I really figured it out, but, you know, as, as time has gone on, I was like, you know what, that was a pretty cool experience. And so then we would did, we would do that more often than we would just kind of sit and, and watch them before we would ride or, um, you know, kind of just watch their own behavior, how they, how they interact with each other, how they interact, you know, with, with the, you know, wildlife, you know, so pheasants and, and other animals and stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think even though horses aren't wildlife, uh, or at least ours weren't, <laughs> Um, it was it was really cool to just kind of sit there and and watch them and like I said that's something I wouldn't have done if I hadn't been ordered to do it but it was it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. And um, you know, based on based on what you're doing now and your research, that skill of skill of observation that you must have learned through that must sometimes come in pretty useful these days. Yeah, you know, I think so. And 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 one of the things. Um, as I was putting together my uh, Idea City talk a couple of years ago, when I gave a talk about um, emperor penguins and the observation that we that I had from um, some of these satellite images, that sometimes you could see an emperor penguin colony in a particular spot, and some years they weren't there at all. Um, and as I was putting that uh, talk together, I thought about mentioning that story as as one of the the things that I because I just I like to observe, I like to pay attention to things and kind of question why why things aren't the way I think they should be and what can we potentially explain that and I think a lot of that does come from just watching um, and being observant um, particularly with horses because they're they're you know they're herbivores they're a prey species right so they're very very perceptive and so when you're paying attention particularly when you're riding out in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden they stop and snort or if they even start to you know kind of flicker their ears back and forth you know something's up um, and so you become pretty in tune with, um, you know, with your surroundings and stuff. And so I think that is one one thing that's kind of stuck with me and that um, helps me in my science from time to time. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Well, I wanted to I wanted to move on and kind of bridge the bridge the gap between childhood and your academic career to date. So you've mentioned that you had an interest in biology and in ecology when you were at when you're at school, and so I, I kind of wondered if you could just say a little bit more about, um, you know, that transition from from school into the research career that you've you've now kind of pursued for the past few years. Yeah, so my uh, I think the transition it happened relatively early actually. I remember I was working at an, uh, a retail store when I was a sophomore in college, 
And um, I just, it, it wasn't for me. And I just remember thinking like, okay, this is enough. Like I, w- I was trying to get some just, you know, quote unquote work experience. And I thought, you know what? No. And I went to my advisor um, after fall semester and I asked if he had any experience. I just wanted to see what it would be like to do um, to do real research. And he said, you know what? I do have a spot for you. And um, so he put me on um, making slides for uh, Hori Bat Guano. <laughs> so <laughs> basically what I was doing was searching through the stomachs of Hori Bats and putting what I found on slides so that we could figure out what they were eating. Um which is not glamorous at all, but it was super intriguing. Um, and I knew that that's not exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But the the idea of being able to put together pieces of a puzzle kind of to figure out what was going on um, with these bats in a particular region in Minnesota was super intriguing. Um, and so I worked really hard at that. And, and that was basically, um, that was the beginning of the end. From that point forward, I was just like, this is super fun. And then I got a job at um, the Department of Natural Resources um, and I think my strategy has kind of always just been to experience as, as much as I can. Um, so yeah, I did some work there and ended up going to grad school, got some temp jobs, you know, was working in a forest and in, in West Virginia, working in the forest in Washington state. Um, and so it, I always kind of had that sense of like, I really wanted to just see the world and experience things. And, um, and I had a feeling as an undergrad that being in ecology would allow me that. Um, and so far it has been, um, it's been very true. So the, so the bat guano stuff that you did, that was at the end of your, towards the end of your undergraduate degree in ecology? Uh, no, that was actually the, um, that was my very first one. I was a sophomore. So I, I oh, did right. that for just a semester. Yeah. And then, yeah, like I said, so what I meant by that was like, okay, that was it. That was from that point forward, I knew I wanted to go into ecology of some kind. Um, so it kind of helped me funnel, um, you know, the, the bio, like which biological aspect of, of research I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to do ecology. Um, so yeah, then from, my junior year and my senior year, I worked with the, the Department of Natural Resources doing some work on uh, white-tailed deer. Uh, and like I said, from that point forward, it was just, I knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to experience um, as much as I could. And so I took, um, it took basically every opportunity I was provided and said, okay, I'm in. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty um, easy transition for me. I knew I kind of knew what I wanted to do and it was it was fun and illuminating and it was great well that's that's really interesting to hear because I think I've got a lot of peers who are studying zoology or conservation or ecology and are looking to um, move into a conservation career or into an academic career in in zoology or ecology and so you're saying that you know part of how you made that transition from your undergraduate degree into a career in this was by really putting yourself out there and saying yes to opportunities to get some experience yep yeah absolutely that's that is um and i occasionally will get asked advice about you know kind of how i got to where i am and honestly there's no um magic trick or or anything uh with it it kind of just happened it was very um just kind of random in my opinion i i I don't really think it's not like 
um, I thought, hey, I'm going to be a, a penguin scientist and also I'm going to use, you know, remote sensing to study them. Like I had no idea that that was going to eventually happen. Um, what ended up happening was I kind of just said, hey, you know what, I think GIS would be a really good tool to use. And that's what I did for my master's degree. Um, and those, <clears throat> that skill set and those tools allowed me to do some of the temporary work that I was doing for a forest inventory company, which has nothing to do with wildlife. Really. Well, the forest inventory part, anyway, it had nothing to do with wildlife. Um, and, and that combination of skills is then what propelled me to my, my job in Antarctica. And so by the time I came around to realizing we could, you know, use the high resolution imagery to study wildlife, I had like this really great combination of skills that there's no way I would have foreseen. You know, I kind of just went with the flow and, and um, I think uh, made a couple good choices and took opportunities that that came my way, but there wasn't like this set idea that I was going to be a penguin researcher or a mountain lion researcher or anything like that. It kind of just was threw myself out there and said, "Hey, I really would like to you know give this a shot." And um, and at the time, there were a, a lot of opportunities to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've never had that solid a plan for some of the opportunities opportunities that have come my way. Sometimes the the most important thing is having the skill of putting yourself out there and, you know, being able to speak to people as well. And that interpersonal communication side of things can be really important for having conversations with people that at some point might lead to an unexpected opportunity, which I'm sure you've probably found as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the one thing that I try to keep in mind for myself now that I've, you know, been doing this for, for quite a while, though, is I keep in mind that I am an extrovert, like I'm a, an extreme extrovert. And so it is easy for me to just, you know, talk to people and I don't feel necessarily too uncomfortable, um, you know, kind of saying, you know, just introducing myself to people. Um, and not everybody's like that. And so I try to make sure that I don't bias myself now when I'm, you know, potentially looking for people to help me out and work with me and stuff. Um, you know, just because some folks are, are maybe better at it doesn't necessarily mean they're better at the job, right? So I try to make sure that I um, uh, am not, uh, you know, blinded by that fact, you know, just because somebody may not feel as comfortable as I do, you know, just randomly calling me up or talking to people doesn't mean um, that they're not out there and that they're, they wouldn't do an awesome job. So I try to keep that in mind nowadays. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Communication mm -hmm. uh, is definitely a theme that I want to return to. Um, I want, so I wanted to ask, and I'm probably going to screw up the timeline. So apologies for that in advance, but your, so your PhD research having, Having done the the white-tailed deer stuff for your master's project, which got you some of the GAIS experience, is that right? So I did um, it kind of. You conflated just two things. So I did the um, the white-tailed deer stuff. I did as an undergrad, and then I moved to my master's degree doing GIS on mountain lions. Um, right. So yeah, kind of a, <laughs> a shift. Um, and then, yeah, as a PhD student, I was um, working full time here at the University of Minnesota and getting my PhD at the same time, um, working on uh, emperor penguins and wet L seals and Adelia penguins. Um, so, yeah, kind of a kind of been all over the place as far as species goes. OK, so what were what were some of the steps that led you to take the decision to do research on Antarctic species for your for your Ph.D.? What what led you there? Um, it was the realization that like it, 
it took me about 30 seconds to realize that I had a PhD project. So um, when I was a <laughs> master's student, <laughs> when I was a master's student, I was offered a PhD project um, by my master's advisor. Um, and I turned it down because I, I wasn't sure that I even really wanted a PhD in the first place. And, and for me, um, and this is just my personal decision and opinion, um, to get a PhD, I wanted to make sure that it was something that I could foresee myself doing for the rest of my life. Like I, I would want to be kind of all in on something. Um, and I just wasn't there quite yet as a, as a master's student. And so I spent about three or four years um, doing other jobs, one of which was working with the United States Antarctic Program to make maps. And so as I was making a map one day, um, I had come across a, an image, a high-resolution image, and I thought I saw a bunch of little black blobs at the end of the Erebus Ice Tongue, which is in Erebus Bay in, um, in Antarctica, and I thought that they were seals. And as soon as I got confirmation that they were, in fact, seals, um, that was like it was like almost an epiphany. It was like, oh my gosh, we can see we can see these animals from space. And I know how to do wildlife ecology and I know how to do GIS and I'm learning remote sensing kind of as I go. This seems like something that there's a lot of work that could potentially be uncovered. Um and so that was when I decided that um there was enough work there for not only a PhD but I think um you know I'm hoping a career's worth of of um, you know, work that needs to be done on covering where these animals are and what, you know, um, how climate change may be affecting their populations. And so, and it was really interesting and new and something that I didn't, I know just enough about to be interested in, but not enough to, um, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, it was just, it was super appealing. Um, and so, yeah, from that point forward, I was just like, this is it, this is, this is going to be fun. And so I decided to get my PhD. So you kind of discovered a rich seam of, of questions to be answered, and that was combined with using this technology in a, in a way that hadn't been done before, at least in Antarctica. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, there was a couple. Um, so we there was a paper um, a couple of years prior to that that had used the high-resolution imagery on emperor penguins um, by Shannon Barber Meyer. So we knew that th there were some images in Antarctica um, that that could be used. And we knew that, you know, there was a little bit that had been done on it. Um, but I think the this opened the door uh, because I was working with a group that was, you know, working with Digital Globe and with the federal government to try to get some of these images, um, not just for science, but also for logistical support and operations and stuff. And so I had um, basically at my fingertips uh, a bunch of imagery that that could be used, um, and so I definitely wanted to make sure to take advantage of that as as best I could and see what we could do with it, and, and you know, build on and and write papers that would be hopefully useful um, to develop methods and stuff like that for estimating populations and, and those kinds of things. So that's where I wanted to focus my attention was like <laughs> working as fast, as fastly as I could to, uh, um, to figure out, you know, what we could do with this kind of imagery and how it can be applied to, um, Antarctic wildlife. So what, what became the kind of central question of your, of your PhD research? And I know you've worked on, worked on other questions since then, but what, what was the first kind of thing that you tried to tackle? Yeah, I think the, I think the first thing, the, the central theme really was figuring out 
how to use the imagery appropriately to answer the questions that we wanted to. So for example, um, if you're going to use the imagery to look at what else seals, the methods and the route that you take to do that is going to be different than if you try to do the same for emperor penguins or deli penguins. They all have a different set of, of methods. So it's not like you can just take an image and use a singular, you know, wildlife technique or even a remote sensing technique to figure out how many there are. There's different ways of going about that. And so um, I was part of the the first emperor penguin census with my uh, colleagues at Bass um, and then worked quickly to do the same for Adelie penguins and Weddell seals. Um, and so it's just kind of a, a building off, off the previous paper, um, you know, which is obviously what science is. But uh, so that was really the central theme was to figure out as best I could how to most appropriately use the image, the imagery for the question at hand. Okay, um, and obviously your your research didn't just involve sitting at a computer screen looking at these images. It also partly involved going to the Antarctic itself and uh, combining that those images with some research on the ground. So I read I read somewhere or heard you say in another podcast somewhere that you used to not be that big a fan of the cold. So I'm wondering what the kind of adjustment was like on your first trip to Antarctica and how you found that. Oh my God. I so growing up in Wisconsin, <laughs> I hated cold weather so much. Um, it's totally true. And then I moved to Southern Illinois and then I hated the heat even more. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think the, the, the first time I went to Antarctica, I didn't, I didn't know how, not only how cold it was going to be, but also how dry and really, really windy. Um, but because I was there in the summertime, at least the first time I was there, it really wasn't that cold. So the transition actually wasn't that bad. Um, and I remember, um, I was there on Christmas in 2008 and it was actually colder in Minnesota on Christmas that year than it was in Antarctica where I was in McMurdo station. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad, but then when I started going in the springtime, then things were a little bit different. It was a lot windier, a lot colder. Um, and so you do learn to, you know, I learned from my other colleagues and things to, you know, how to dress warmly and um, how to prepare effectively to go outside for, you know, hours at a time. What What's it like being there on on Christmas, I guess, which which is kind of a, a more niche question for the wider question of what's the community like there at the research base where, where you go out to? Yeah, McMurdo, I always loved McMurdo. Um, I always had a, a great time. Um, the support staff there are wonderful. It's, it's just this, like, it's probably one of the most intelligent communities on earth. I feel like, like everyone there is really, really smart. And so, um, you know, the conversations you have over coffee or wine or, you know, lunch or dinner are just, you know, they're not always like super fascinating. Obviously sometimes you really just need to talk about how, you know, freaking cold it is outside. But, um, you know, but a lot of times you're just, I'm just fascinated by, you know, the, the scientific conversations that come up. Um, so the community there, I think is it's, it's pretty tight. It's relatively small. Um, and then being there on Christmas was, um, it was pretty cool. If I remember right, I think I went for a hike that day. Um, and then you have to sign up for, for your Christmas dinner because um, they have, you know, different time slots so everybody can have um, a really nice Christmas dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they treat it, um, you know, like a, like a special day and, um, you know, everybody dresses however it is they feel. I think I wore a skirt, which is 
kind of not normal in McMurdo, <laughs> or at least <laughs> I think so. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice. The food was great. You know, the the people were really friendly. It was my first year, and so I didn't know a whole lot of people. Um, so I had you know just a few people that I was you know sitting next to and stuff. But yeah, it was it was it was pretty nice. It was certainly a very special experience, and I only did it one time. So, um, so yeah, it was pretty cool. Okay, cool. So how many how many people are sort of at the base on average at any one time? Are we talking dozens or hundreds or? Um, I think in the summertime in McMurdo, I think there's around a thousand is is the max. I think, um, if I remember correctly, and things may have changed since I've been there last. It's been five years since I've been there, so I don't um, I don't know how things may have changed. But I think that's roughly about a thousand people is is what it can hold. Okay, so I want to ask. Um, I, I'd really love for you to pick out uh, a kind of memorable story or two from from your time in Antarctica, whether that's from your PhD or from later visits. But I did want to ask about one story in particular that I heard you tell. So um, I I was listening to an interview with you, it, with you where you talk about trying to gain access to, to a particular bit of land and you were stopped by the Argentinian <laughs> authorities. And then you just sort of said, and we ended up with a couple of penguins in the boat. And then I think yeah. you kind of skipped over how you ended up with the penguins in the boat. And I really wanted to know like how that situation came about. <laughs> yeah, that was that was interesting. So um, yeah, this was a couple years ago. Um, we were on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is on the clear on the other side of the continent. Um, yeah, and so we had wanted to um, to try to count the Adelie penguins, and I, I think this was in Hope Bay, which is a pretty darn big um, Adelie penguin colony. Um, and so normally what we would do is, you know, you, you get off onto land and then you go, um, you know, kind of to the edge of the colony and you either count and or take photography as, as best you can so that you can see how many, um, how many birds are there. But we were told we couldn't do that. Um, and uh, for whatever reason. So we said, okay, fine, we'll just, uh, we're not you know, gonna be able to get anywhere near the, the penguin colony. So what we did instead was we went back to the ship and got onto a Zodiac. Um, and so it was um, my, my colleague Heather and I, and um, one of the guides, Juan, was, was driving the boat for us. And so we were literally in the water facing the penguin colony, taking pictures as quickly as we could um, because it was getting to be dinner time and, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of time. And so we were trying to take as many pictures and with the idea of being able to stitch them together later to, to count the birds. So as we're doing this, I was sitting up at the, the front of the boat and all of a sudden I hear this like huge thud and a bunch of like scratching around. And I thought somebody had like slipped and fell. I mean, there's only three of us in the boat, so I didn't really know what was going on. And I turned around and there's two penguins, two Adeli penguins had jumped into the boat, into the zone. <laughs> um, and I kind of just was in awe. I'm like, I didn't even know that that was a possibility. <laughs> um, and so I kind of just turned around and I didn't really know what to do. I mean, your the instinct is to freeze, which is the right thing to do. So it kind of just froze there and, and sat still to you know, kind of let them, you know, gain their surroundings and figure out what they were doing. And then eventually they hopped back out of the boat. But um, that was certainly a, probably one of the more memorable experiences. And then it, as it turns out, when we got back um, later that evening to the the ship, apparently that had happened to a couple other crews too. <laughs> of, of other people were in, um, in Zodiacs and uh, a penguin hopped right in and it was a great video, actually. They, the the people in the boat did exactly the right thing, you know. So when you whenever you come across Antarctic wildlife, you have to 
sit perfectly still as best you can um, to not alter their behavior. Um, and the people in the video that I said, they did it perfectly. This, this penguin jumped up, it like cleared somebody's shoulder basically and was like hopping around people's feet and stuff and everybody just sat perfectly still and let it hop back out of the boat. So that was my... <laughs> That was my penguin in the boat story. Okay, that's good. I was I was so intrigued when you when you mentioned it in passing in that other interview, and I was like, what is this like? Were they like tagging them or ringing them? Is this part of the research? Or yeah, I was like, how did they end up with penguins in the boat? So it was it was a total accident. I think I think they must have thought. I mean, they surely they thought the boat was the land, right? So they were hopping yeah. up, thinking they were going to land either on an ice floe or you know to try to get up onto land, and <laughs> ended up in our <laughs> boat, and we're like, oh, this is not. This is not what I thought it was. Um, yeah, yeah, they were really pretty funny. Um, so I, by by pure chance, a couple of days ago on British kind of Christmas TV, there was a program about Emperor and Adelie penguins. In fact, it was on on Christmas Day itself. Um, Aww. Yeah, um, I was like, good choice by whoever whoever you know sorted out that schedule for Christmas Day. Um, and it was then followed by a whole ton of David Attenborough documentaries on flight. Um, the um, so I got a sense myself from that TV program of of what the kind of landscape is like, uh, but obviously that that film crew were based kind of in amongst the colonies. But I was wondering if you could give us a flavour of what the what the landscape is like in the areas where you were hiking and doing your research and around McMurdo Station as well. Just kind of paint the picture a little bit for people. Yeah, so McMurdo Station um, is it's like a little town. I think a lot of people, um, don't know that it's, you know, there's a, a huge building where you go and eat, there's dorms, there's a bowling alley, there's, you know, a coffee shop. Um, you know, there's places where you can go work out. So it's, it looks like a little, kind of like a little mining town actually. Um, but obviously there's no trees or greenery or anything like that. Um, and you're on a bunch of effectively volcanic soil. So it's very like, you know, dark brown and white. And so off in the distance, you see the mountains and, um, and it's very, very beautiful. Um, but then within, you know, within that just general vicinity of Antarctica, when you go to different places, each place is a little bit different. So I've been to the dry valleys, which is where I um, was doing some work the first two times I was in Antarctica. And even each valley within the dry valleys are, is a little bit different from, from the next one. Um, and so those are, in my opinion, pretty serene and very calm. So when you're camping and, you know, in the middle of, of, you know, Bull Pass or, or Taylor Valley, um, it's just, it's very quiet or it can be very quiet, at least when the wind isn't blowing. Um, and it's, it's just so, um, it's almost like unearth-like a little bit. It's just very rugged, I guess I would say. Um, and it's like I said, in my experience, it's been pretty quiet. But then when you go to the um, penguin colonies, it's very different because they're loud and obnoxious. Um, I'm going to anthropomorphize them here for a little bit. Um, obviously, it smells like penguins. It smells like fish. There's dead bodies all over the place. There's skuas picking up, you know, as as many eggs and chicks as they can. Um, so it's a very a very different experience um, depending on on where you are even in just that little, you know, relatively small area in Antarctica. And then, of course, the Antarctic Peninsula is entirely different than all of that. So I feel like wherever you go in Antarctica, you're going to have a unique experience. kind of just depends on where you are. Cool. 
I want to I want to jump back actually. Sorry, I I asked and then I didn't let you answer whether or not besides the besides the Delhi Penguins jumping in the boat, are there any kind of particular memories that stand out to you? And I'd be really interested in if there's you know if there's a particularly special memory that you have, but also any any kind of failures or mistakes that you've learned from because the foundation of all good field work and conservation is like so many things in life, you know, built on the basis of learning from mistakes. Oh man. Um, I made a lot of mistakes my first year in particular, um, with logistical issues and they were all my fault. Like <laughs> it was just <laughs> like one mistake after another. And it was just, it was new and inexperienced and didn't think to ask certain questions. So my first year um, on the ice, I, first of all, I went by myself, and then my the rest of my crew came later. And they weren't my crew. I wasn't the PI. I was the, um, I guess, kind of the field lead, but I wasn't the PI. Mm. So um, I was down there first kind of getting things set up, making people maps and things. And then our goal for that season was to gather ground control points in the dry valleys. And so a ground control point is basically putting out a really high-resolution uh, GPS unit that will calculate the latitude, longitude, and the elevation. And the idea was that we could make better maps if we had these ground control points to to kind of tie down the imagery a little bit better. So that's what we were supposed to do. So we were we uh, flew out to Bull Pass, um, which is this really cool little valley between um, Wright Valley and Victoria Valley in, in the dry valleys. And we got out there and I misprioritized a bunch of our food. I misprioritized um, the bathroom. <laughs> I misprioritized. <laughs> Hold on, I want to. Um, I want to dig a little bit more into what exactly you mean by I misprioritized the bathroom. Yeah. So when you're packing, so when you get to McMurdo, um, like I said, this is it's the logistical hub. So this is where you where you get all of your information, and there is a person there to answer any question that you may have. Mm-hmm. It, I don't care what question you might have. There is somebody who can help you answer it. Um, <laughs> so I just didn't take advantage of that as as much as I should have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're you know you're in the you know couple days before you have to start packing your things and and you prioritize things. So. Priority one things are things that are going to keep you alive. So if the helicopter can't come back and get you for some reason, which is, you know, a very real possibility given the weather um, in Antarctica, you need stuff that will help you stay alive. So you need water, food, and shelter, right? right. Those are all priority one. Also, the bathroom should have been priority one, but I didn't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then things that are priority two are, um, um, you know, kind of like on the second shipment. So, um, you know, stuff that's, you know, that you need, but, you know, it can come a little bit later. So like, I don't know, cheese or something like that. It it was not a big deal. Then priority three are the things that you could live with entirely if you didn't need them. Uh, You know, you could live with entirely uh, if they didn't bring them out to you. Um, And I can't even really remember what what an example would be. But I accidentally misprioritized our, our bathroom as priority three and so what ended up happening is priority priorities one and two got to us right away um and then priority three because of weather and because of the weekend um we we spent probably three or four days without um a uh, a good normal type of bathroom that you should have while you are in the dry valleys and so obviously we made do with what we had with us and we didn't um violate any international laws or anything like that obviously we we were able to <laughs> figure it out but it was one of those like oh no <laughs> uh it was um 
not something I'd want to do again. But <laughs> that was a that was a major failure. I was like, oh man, this is this is whoops. Uh, one time we we left the stove on. Um, I I somehow didn't realize when the helicopter was coming. I, th- I think I thought it was going to come at like nine o'clock and it actually came at eight o'clock. So we were in a huge hurry to get our stuff going. Like we were just sitting around and drinking our coffee and, you know, taking our time in the morning, thinking we had an hour before the helicopter came. And then all of a sudden you hear the the chopper and you hear the rotors coming from miles away. And I remember the PI and I looked at each other and we're like, oh no. <laughs> so we're <laughs> scrambling as, as fast as we could um, because, you know, helicopter time is, uh, um, you know, it's a hot commodity and you have to be very, very efficient with, you know, with everybody's time. Um, so we scrambled as, as fast as we could and we ended up accidentally leaving the stove on. I don't think the burner was on, like, but just there was, we got back later in the day and we're like, oh my God, we could have burned down the tent. We didn't, but, so that was another major fail that I probably should not have admitted, but (laughs) it totally happened and everything was fine. No, I mean, so much of field work is like these mistakes. And I, I went to live in Indonesia for a year and I thought I asked enough questions about, you know, what stuff should I bring and what should I prioritize? Mm-hmm. But I could definitely have asked more questions and it would have, you know, saved me some money and saved me some packing space or meant that I could have packed more efficiently. You know, this is, like I said, this is what stuff, you know, kind of <laughs> good and enjoyable field work that you'll look back on fondly is built on. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but I don't want to give the impression that it's all just kind of, you know, mishaps and um, not asking the right questions. Are there any kind of more special memories that you have, kind of particular moments that you've witnessed of wildlife or, you know, anything that really stands out? Um, I will say I think probably one of the more memorable moments wasn't, you know, any like it wasn't like an epiphany or anything like that. I just remember um, my second year down, we um, we were still gathering ground control points and this time we were doing it around the Cape Royds colony. And so we didn't have access to the colony. We didn't need access to get inside the colony. Um, so we were just, you know, kind of gathering ground control points around, um, this colony of Adelie penguins. And when we were done for the evening, we kind of just sat at the, at the edge of where the land and the, and the sea ice meet, um, out of the way of, of the penguins. So they, we weren't, um, you know, impeding their access to the colony, but we just sat there and, and watched them. And I must've sat and watched these little animals, you know, kind of trek in and out from the ocean for probably two hours. Um, and I just will never, the reason I'll never forget this is because it was so quiet that night. Like all you could hear was the penguins and you could, you know, you could kind of hear their little feet like clicking and clacking on the ice, um, you know, just kind of walking back and forth and, you know, I must have stayed up until midnight that night just watching them go back and forth uh, to the ocean. And eventually we saw some orcas out in the distance. And um, it was just one of those really quiet moments where I got to, again, observe animals kind of just doing their thing and just watching them. You know, because if you sit still long enough and they didn't really, I don't think, saw us too much, um, you know, you, you're actually watching them as they would be normally because they're not terribly brilliant. (laughs) So like even if you sit there long enough and you're still long enough, I kind of think that they don't see you. And so you really kind of just get a glimpse into their behaviors and, and what makes an Adelie penguin tick. And you're sitting right in front of them watching them do this. And that was a, 
I think that, like I said, that was just kind of another moment where I just got to observe and watch and kind of relax and breathe and just kind of take it all in. And um, that was a really, really memorable, you know, moment that lasted hours. It was great. Is that the kind of thing that keeps you going back to the Antarctic as well as, yeah. kind of, you know, the conservation challenges? Yeah, that it, it is. Um, it's one of those things where when I when I go, sometimes I I do remind myself to put down like if I have spare time, like if I get done with what I'm doing in the field, um, and I have spare time, of course, I like to take pictures, and so I have my camera with me at all times. Um, but every once in a while, I if I'm whatever it is I'm watching or seeing, I'll make sure to just put my camera down and just be there, you know, just like. You might never, like, the way I always look at it is like, I might never be here ever again. And I don't want to miss out on the moment by, you know, constantly having a, a camera up to my face, um, which I love. But every once in a while, it's sometimes really nice to just kind of sit back and, and observe. Um, and the last time I did that actually was on the peninsula. And I was taking pictures and taking pictures. And I was sitting on a rock in the middle of nowhere. There was no penguins anywhere near me. They were all just kind of off in the distance. Um and so I was just kind of sitting watching them, you know, do their thing. And I turned around and there was this little chin strap penguin behind me. And I'm fairly confident that neither of us knew the other one was there because <laughs> I turned around and it it saw me and it kind of like squawked. And then I felt horrible. Um, and I, you know, of course, just sat still and and just let it be. But, you know, those are the kinds of things like if I hadn't been paying attention, I, I wouldn't have seen that little wayward penguin. Um so those are the kinds of things that I try to make sure to do when I'm there is it's I'm not just there gathering data. I'm also observing and, and trying to learn about, um, you know, what it's like to be a penguin, what what they the, you know, the kinds of environments that they have to deal with. And that all helps me, I think, interpret, um, you know, my results and things when I get back into my office and, and working on the computer. Mm. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. You've just moved me seamlessly onto my next question which okay. was <laughs> um you've obviously done this before so that so as a non-scientist i've understood that you're you're using the kind of research on the ground to triangulate and kind of ground truth the results that you're getting from the from the satellite imagery but um i kind of wanted to ask what and this is probably kind of a a difficult question to answer in a in a short time frame but what are some of the main findings from your research in terms of, I understand that in particular you've looked at kind of the impacts of fishing and of climate change on the habitat for these penguin species and for the seals, right? Yeah, so I think those are things that we're, particularly the fishing, we're still trying to to hash out and, and figure out what's going on. Um, so the, I guess some of the major findings, like I said, uh, so far, um, first of all, have been just kind of methodological. So it's, you know, how can we best, you know, use this information? And now I'm, I'm working on trying to apply that. And so um, what I'm learning right now with my research on what else seals is, and this is work that's still ongoing, so my answer could change tomorrow. Um, this, you know, this is really just anecdotal at the moment. But um, it seems to me that um, because we're having folks, you know, search high resolution images for us and tell us where they see seals um, and where, where they don't, which is just as important as knowing where they are, knowing where they are not is really important too. Um, there seems to be some pretty stark contrasts between different regions around the Antarctic. So some regions have a lot of 
spaces that are filled with seals and some places that even though there may be, um, you know, sea ice, fast ice available for them, we're just not seeing them. And so we'll eventually get to the answer as to why within the next few months, probably. Um, but those are the kinds of questions that were that I'm asking at the moment. And it seems really basic and it is like, you'd think that by this point, you know, the end of 2017, we should know where all of the Weddell seals are, but we don't. Um, we also don't know why they're in certain locations. We, we have, you know, pretty good hypotheses and pretty good, a pretty good idea of where they should be and why they're in certain locations. But, um, but we've never been able to check <laughs> at such a, a large scale before. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out um, right now. And then once we have that information, then we can go back and say, okay, um, so some of the other questions that we'll be able to answer are, again, why are they in certain locations? Is the sea ice extent, um, you know, does it stick around long enough for them to do, you know, to raise their pups and things like that? Is there um, a prey issue? Is there, you know, enough is there enough prey in certain locations compared to others? Um, there's all kinds of other questions that we can ask then once once we have that information. So I'm still, I feel like kind of answering and, and trying to ask basic questions, but um, some of those questions just have, you know, eluded us for quite some time. Yeah, and the, and the sea ice extent and the prey thing, those are those are factors that might be influenced by climate change or the level of fishing in the area, right? Yeah, and those at the moment, um, those are pretty difficult things to kind of disentangle. And so, um, like I said, the the way that I approach what I'm doing is is to try to do it as methodically as possible to say, okay, here we have to know where they are and first, <laughs> like, okay, so where yeah. were they in you know in this year? Um, did that? Then the next question is, does that change from year to year? Are there some locations that always have seals and then are there some populations that sometimes have seals and sometimes they don't if that's the case can we describe why that might be why are there differences between these two different spots um and that may have you know nothing to do with climate change or fishing that just may have to do with you know availability of, of fast ice or something yeah. then once we get that information then we can say okay now can we tell the difference between the population sizes you know, um, so we always see seals here, but are they, you know, does the population change from year to year? Now can we describe that? And I think at that point, then we may be able to start asking, okay, is is there some influence of um, fishing or, um, you know, primary productivity? Is there an influence of, you know, what we might think about climate change? So it's a kind of a, I try to be as methodical as possible, but just because this, this high resolution imagery is, a relatively new way of going about learning about these animals. And so we have to be really careful about what we can say with, with the information Like we have to be really specific. And I try really hard to make sure that we do it as accurately as possible. Yeah. Well, I saw you got involved in kind of trying to clear up some misreporting of penguin deaths that were kind of potentially wrongly ascribed to climate change. And then your comments were taken out of context and used to kind of say, oh, well, climate change isn't actually a problem, which was not what you were saying either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that right. happens occasionally. Yeah. So there, uh, I think, I think there's been two times now, but the one that I think probably got the most traction was, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before, but um, there was a report that, you know, there was just, you know, massive deaths at a particular penguin colony. And the evidence for those deaths was the fact that there were, um, you know, penguin carcasses all over this particular colony. 
Um, and so I, you know, decided it was useful to speak up about that because every penguin colony I have ever been at, there are penguin carcasses everywhere, particularly, particularly, I should say, in, in the Ross Sea, which is where I've, I've visited the most. Um, and that's for all kinds of reasons. Penguins die all the time, but also the, there really isn't any bacteria or anything to break down the bodies. And so these carcasses stay there forever not literally forever, but I mean, they stay for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like just this like massive carnage all over the place. Um, when in fact it's really just, I don't know how many years, but years and years of, you know, penguin bodies that are just kind of building up within the colony. And so that that's not abnormal. Um, and so that's what I wanted to just kind of provide context about was, um, that in and of itself isn't abnormal. Um, and so it would, if that's the only reason you're using to say, okay, there's a lot of dead penguins, that's not convincing to me because I see that all the time. Now, um, I think there was a more recent um, observation, I think in the, at that same location or somewhere near that same location, um, where they're actually, I think, to my, as far as I understand, there actually were a bunch of recently dead um, Adelie penguin chicks. That's different. That's that means that was this year's, you know, um, crop of of chicks, basically, and that that's a different story. Um, and so it, it seems like a kind of pedantic, maybe, but it's not. Like those are actually two very different situations, and um, one really has nothing to do with the other. And the more recent, um, I guess, observation of the dead penguin chicks, I don't know what what would have caused that, but certainly that's interesting i guess and, and is definitely different than just seeing dead penguin chicks that have been built up over you know decades potentially um but yeah then those then my just saying like hey by the way just for context don't everybody flip out penguins die all the time they do particularly chicks <laughs> um this is not abnormal yeah. um you know just saying something like that and just providing a little bit of context and and a little bit of a, a reality check then can be taken sometimes um, and used in ways that um, are then in themselves inappropriate. So it's a it's really unfortunate, I think, um, when that happens. Because then I wasn't given a chance to clarify. And uh, yeah, such is yeah. <laughs> well, science communication is a topic that I want to come back to in a moment. But um, I wanted to touch briefly on the fact that on top of all this research that you do in the Antarctic, you're also um, executive director of the Cougar Network in the US, which, and please correct me if this is kind of wrong or not or not quite right, which is in part using citizen science observations to see whether or not the Cougar is returning, like spreading back eastwards to some of its historic range in the US. You got it. Woo. <laughs> okay, yeah, good, good job. <laughs> um, could you say a little bit more, I guess, about how, how, why you went about setting that up? Yeah, so um, I did not set up the Cougar Network. I will say okay. that. Um, so the the Cougar Network was formed in the early two thousands by three men who decided, you know what, there there's been a lot of, and this was, yeah, like I said, early two thousands. But for probably a decade prior to that, there had been a lot of reports about cougars in the east, and so in the east was, I think, you know, think like West Virginia, you know, almost the east coast of the United States. Um, and they said, you know what, we should set up 
uh, a group to, to keep track in a scientific and robust way. So in other words, not using um, citing reports, we have to have some sort of physical evidence. And so they created the Cougar Network for that purpose, to really track whether you know cougars are being seen with increasing frequency outside of their range in the American West. Um, and by America, I mean the continent, so the United States and Canada. <laughs> um, and so they set that up and have been, you know, tracking uh, physical evidence of cougars ever since. Um, and so physical evidence is like, you know, a photo, a track, a carcass, obviously, uh, but also DNA evidence and, and scat evidence. Um, and so in 2014, the the three guys asked me, the three founders asked me to um, to come on and be the executive director um, just to see if we could, you know, what else can we do with, with these data? Um, it's now a 25 year data set, which is, which is pretty great. Um, and so we continually do research, um, science communication, and then, and then outreach as well. So that's kind of our, our goal is to work with the public, work with state agencies to keep track of actual places where cougars have been. And it's primarily in the Midwestern section of the United States and Canada. Okay. Um, so given that you do all of that for the Cougar Network on top of your research, and we haven't yet touched on all the science communication stuff that you do, <laughs> I, I'm really interested in, um, I'm in interested broadly in kind of how you manage your time to do so much stuff, but I'm particularly interested in whether or not you have a way of deciding what opportunities to say yes to and what to say no to, because I'm sure you must get lots of offers of projects to get involved in more than you could possibly have time for? Oh my God, I am the worst person to ask this question. <laughs> um, I don't think I manage my time very well at all. Uh, no, so um, so I do, what I tend to do, I guess, as far as, as time management is, um, I try to make sure that the the most impactful, so this is really subjective, but hopefully helpful for some people who may be listening. Um, make sure that the most impactful and also the things that are, you know, maybe do the soonest get done, get done first. Um, and so through time, what I've ended up doing is I can, I can kind of prioritize that way to say like, okay, here's, here are the things that I know I can get done and also really, really need to be, need to get done you have to focus on those things first. But sometimes if I'm having a week where I'm like, oh my God, like right now, literally I have, I have 14 things on my to-do list. So I create, you know, little to-do lists and depending on how much time I have, um, and hopefully if I have no meetings and things, um, I'll try to, you know, kind of peg off a few things that are easy to do. So kind of the low hanging fruit. Um, and that kind of gets me rolling a little bit and kind of gets me into the swing of things. Um, but then as far as, you know, saying yes and no to things. I'm really fortunate that the, at the moment I have the um, I have the ability to say and accept things that I either want that I want to that I really want to do that I think would bring me joy and and things like that. Um, you know, not everybody. I think, especially when it's a paying job, right? I, I I'm really fortunate at the moment that I have the I can say no to um, a communication, um, you know, a presentation or something, you know, even if even if it's a paying gig, if it's not something that I have time for, or if it's you know something that um, may not be as um, 
helpful or if I'm not the right person for the job, which sometimes happens. And sometimes I'll say, you know, I think I would love to help you, but you know, this other person may, may do a better job. Um, so I, I'm kind of rambling and I don't really think I know how to manage my time very well. I think I'm really just kind of winging it. <laughs> um, and I think it's going to catch up with me at some point. I'm, I'm fairly confident some of my collaborators, if they were listening to me right now, would be like, yeah, she needs to start saying no to more things, which is probably true. Yeah, it's something that I'm having to, I have had to learn to be better at and I'm still learning. It's uh, it's definitely a skill in itself. It's filtering the opportunities that becomes more and more important, I think, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I think as far as, you know, presentations and stuff, I, it is one of the things that brings me the most joy. I absolutely love talking to people um, and talking to people about science and, and things that I find interesting. And if people are willing to listen to me talk, it's like, oh, my God, really? You want to hear what I have to say? Um, so I really I really do enjoy doing that. But it does take time. And so, like I said, what I what I try to do is is make sure now that I've been doing this for a couple of years, make sure that I'm the right fit, that it will, you know, um, that it will bring me joy and, and that I will get something out of it, hopefully as much as, as the group will. Um, and if it's, if it doesn't fit those two categories, then what I still try to do is make sure to help the group, um, or the organization or whoever is asking me, I'll help try to help them find somebody who would fit. Um, because I, you know, obviously I can't do what I do for free, but I also feel very passionately about science communication and getting, um, you know, conservation messages out there. So I don't like to leave anyone, you know, high and dry, as it were. Right. And I, th I think, to be honest, you've almost just answered my next question, which was going to be that you, you're a prolific science communicator. You know, I've, I've in my research, I've found quotations from you in more news stories than I had time to read and uh, I found audio clips of you as the in-house penguin expert for Slate's <laughs> podcast that they do. Um, They're so nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> as well as as well as some excellent YouTube videos that people can go and watch of you speaking at various different events. Um, so I, th I think you've really just touched on the answer to my next question which is why you why you feel so driven to do so much such a quantity and high quality of of science communication which you've said in parts to get the conserva conservation message out there really right yeah so i think um the 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 reason i like to do it is is very selfish i like it i really like um i really like doing it and um i watched a, a documentary about comedians recently and i saw a lot of their answers to these kinds of similar questions in me in that it's it's almost kind of an adrenaline rush it's a it makes me feel good when um you know, when people are interested in science and when people are interested in like the little itty bitty piece of the puzzle that i have to you know contribute to the larger vast amount of science um and so i get i get a lot of i get a lot out of that um and so it is for for that reason it's it's kind of selfish but at the same time um I also really like, you know, I just, I really like talking to people. Everybody has a story, right? Everybody has um, an experience. Everybody's unique. And so I love connecting with people um, in that way. And then I think, um, I guess the reason that I got into to science communication in the first place was entirely by accident. Um, it was when I was at uh, my, the Idea City talk. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was watching as many TED Talks and YouTube videos and reading about how to do a a talk like this. Um, so again, I had 
I had no idea what I was doing. So, um, so sorry, just to set that in context yeah. for people, what year was that in? And so that was that one was of your in, first kind of speaking gigs. Yep, that was 2014. And so okay. that was really my first, it was the first one that was like video taped and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, and, and broadcast, it was broadcast live and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, pr- prior to that, all of my other talks were, um, you know, either guest lectures or, um, um, you know, at uh, seminars and things like that. So it was never on, you know, like literally a stage in an auditorium before this was totally new to me. Um, so again, because I kind of just have this, I think, underlying like, oh, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. You know, if I embarrass myself, whatever. Um, so I just, you know, I'll give it a shot. And so uh, so I did, and it was really fun. And when the next day we had a... Um, it was kind of a, a final brunch for all of the speakers who were there. And um, I will never forget the conversation I had with Rick Smolin, who is a world famous photographer. And I like couldn't even believe that he was talking to me like, oh, my God, you're Rick Smolin. Why are you wasting your time talking with me? Um, and because I had read tracks and, and was just a huge fan of his. And uh, he said, you know, have you ever thought about speaking? And I didn't even really know that that was a a thing that someone could do as a profession or anything. And I said, no. And he's like, you really, you really should. Um, and he offered to help me, which he has been an incredible, um, incredible influence and an incredible amount of encouragement is just, you know, kind of encouraged me to continue doing it. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll try to get better at it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think it's, I have, I have a personality, like I said, I'm, a, I'm an extrovert and, and I like talking to people. Um, and I think that's something where, you know, that combination of, of knowing a little bit about science and, and having that kind of a personality fits well with um, science communication, I think. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. <laughs> I'm still winging it, but um, yeah, but I was in, influenced for sure uh, by Rick. And like I said, then I decided to um, go forward with uh, meeting up with some speaking groups of people who do, that's all they do is, you know, teach people how to give good speeches and stuff. So I've got training from, from those people and have kind of tried to just hone my skills every time I do another talk. Right. Can I, can I just dig a little bit deeper into some of the advice that Rick gave you? What, what Mm -hmm. were some of the specific things that he, he helped you with? Well, so he helped me, he connected me with, um, APB, which is where I have, um, which is where I have a profile so people can come and find me on um, the American Program Bureau's website. Um, so he connected me with a, a, a speakers bureau, um, which is, has probably been the, you know, the number one thing that he's done. But we still, every once in a while, we still stay in touch, um, you know, and and he's been, like I said, he's just been really, really great. Because he himself is a fan, not, as only, not only is he a great photographer um, and a, a really good storyteller, he's a great, great speaker. Um, he tells wonderful stories and his life has just been so interesting, you know, and so to, to, so I watch him, um, and I watch other people who I admire and try to kind of take the things that I think they do really well and try to do them well as, as best I can. And are those, are those ways of being on stage or are they about preparing for a talk or a combination of those things? Um, so the people that I try to kind of emulate, I try to emulate, their, I guess the way their presence on stage and, um, and certainly the, the practicing, the practicing I think is probably more 
my own because it seems it starts out for me very chaotic. <laughs> um, I, I'm a very I feel like it's it's very chaotic and through you know just pr- kind of practice over time, um, you know I kind of get the hang of it and get into a groove. And so the the things that I try to do are um, I watch I watch behaviors, I watch the way they interact with you know with the audience. Um, I try to use um, you know, improv skills. So, uh, you know, kind of reading the audience and, and, and trying to kind of be in the moment, which is again, another reason I think being an observational scientist really helps to, to kind of pay attention to your surroundings and, and see where you are. And, um, and that kind of helps me be free my mind a little bit to be sometimes clever (laughs) and, and maybe a, a little witty if I can be so bold as to say that. Um, and so I kind of just watch their their mannerisms, their their comfort level, and and then I just practice, practice, practice constantly. Um, yeah, and that's that's kind of my really haphazard approach to, <laughs> to, to talking in front of people. <laughs> well, it seems to, it seems to really work because I've hugely enjoyed watching some of the videos of you give lectures. So oh, thank you. I'll include some links in the in the notes alongside the episode for people to go and check those out. Um, I wanted to ask as well, you you know, as well as the as well as the talks and the speeches, you're quoted in any number of places on various topics to do with kind of Antarctic conservation and species and other topics as well. It, is that through people approaching you because they perceive you as kind of the go-to expert, or are you going out there and creating those opportunities for yourself, or is that partly kind of your your department doing press releases on research findings. How how are you coming about those opportunities? Yeah, so I think um, it's a combination of two of those things. I don't I don't really put myself out there too much unless it's something I think is really really important. Like the only time I actually went out and sought out someone to cover the the penguin apocalypse, I actually went to onto Twitter and said, hey. Um, I have something to say here and I didn't really expect anyone to care <laughs> or listen to me. Um, but they, but a, a few journalists, um, caught, caught a hold of that. And, and so that happened every other time though, basically has been, um, a press release about, about my research, which is another way that I've gotten a lot of really great communications training is through the university of Minnesota's communications people. They're fantastic. Um, and have really done a good job, I think of, of prepping me and by that I mean I feel at least comfortable doing doing these things now um, whereas the first time I did it I was like I didn't know what I was doing uh, not that I know a whole lot more now but I feel at least more comfortable um, and so then the other the remaining part I think is people um, you know reaching out to me particularly when it comes to penguins and, and cougars people will um, reach out to me typically especially if there's like a cougar in Wisconsin or Iowa or you know somewhere I, I get um, phone calls um, for a lot of those things and then you know if there's a, a fun penguin story or even a not fun penguin story people will reach out to me as well nice um, I, I wanted to ask as well um, I've heard you mention in, in some of the interviews and podcasts with you about um, about kind of what's almost the inverse of telling stories, which is the importance of listening. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about why you think that's such an important skill to build up as well. Well, so um, that's one thing that I get really irritated with other scientists about is that we are really, really good at talking at people, I think. And I don't necessarily know that we do as good a job of listening. And the reason I think listening is really important is because, uh, again, this all comes back to 
what I think is the most important thing in science communication, which is your audience, right? So mm-hmm. the the um, the hook, I guess we'll say, for any particular communication piece has everything to do with your audience. If your audience is not going to relate or care or, you know, you know, I guess give two hoots about the reason or the hook for what you're about to tell them, then you've lost already. Um, and so it's really important to listen to people's experiences and stories, where they're coming from. What is it that will help me relate to them in a way that, you know, we can have a connection? And I think that's the one one thing that I see sometimes, um, and, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, I'm sure I do this as well, but one way I think scientists go wrong sometimes is that we just assume we know what they will relate to or that we just like, oh, no, I've got it. Like, I've got the message. You just listen to me. Um, and I think that depending on who you are, that can be a really arrogant way about going about science communication. Um, so I'll give you an example. So um, I gave a, a talk in northern Illinois in November, and it was to, uh, it was a conservation foundation that sponsored it. But I knew there were going to be um, a lot of agriculture people, a lot of farmers, um, also a lot of conservationists. So it's going to be kind of like a mixed bag of people. Um, and I was there to talk about mountain lions. And so we, the, the other speaker and I showed up probably two to two and a half hours early. And so what that allowed me to do was get used to the room, talk to people, kind of see the people trickling in, um, and kind of gain a little bit of context about how how am I going to relate to to people? And it has to be a meaningful and a real connection. You can't fake that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think taking the time to get to know who you're talking to is absolutely critical to effective science communication. Um, and again, I'm, I'm saying this like I know what I'm talking about. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but like I feel like that helps me at least feel comfortable talking with people because then what ends up happening is, you know, the jokes that you're hoping to tell or like the funny, silly, quirky things that you think might work on one audience might fall totally flat in another. Um, and so doing that background work of, getting to know the folks you're talking to is super helpful Um, because yeah once you have that hook and once you you know you get them relating to you then you can have the the meaningful conversation Um, because yeah if you come across as a like no no just listen to me I work at the University of Minnesota and don't you know this let me tell you what you should know Um, no one likes no one likes to listen to that no I think that's I think that's really useful I think it's great for people who might be listening to this who are conservationists uh, hear a concrete example of how someone you know how someone who's done a lot of talks prepares for that kind of thing um, you know there's it can seem like it's a bit of um, a magician's guild with lots of secrets but actually it's it's good to kind of just peer behind that curtain and see see how normal people prepare for these things and do these things and accomplish the kind of things that you have um, I think that the listening thing is also really important. It goes back to something which you mentioned almost at the start of the conversation, which was around um, people who are more introverted maybe finding it harder to put themselves out there, but you know, potentially having just as valid or more valid uh, thoughts or opinions. Creating more space for listening, I think, opens up more space for voices that might not be heard as much, but are just as, if not more, important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I... I, I um... <clears throat> I'm, I'm married to an introvert and <laughs> he tells me that all the time. He's like, you know what? Sometimes he's like, it's just nice. He's like, it's, he just, he likes to listen and, mm. and being able and, and, and gain, like I said, gaining context, I think is, 
is really critical. Um, and so to not discount that, because I, of course, I've, I've, you know, given talks to lots of different audiences um, in in several different countries, even, and um, you know, and each each audience is different. And so I try to make sure that I'm not, you know, focusing only on the people who are more likely to ask me questions or or whatever. I try to make sure I make time for for people who, um, you know, may may not be as comfortable speaking they may be really really great at writing or, or doing other you know other ways of communication but um, you got to make sure that you don't miss that um, I actually gave a talk in in Pennsylvania in, uh, um, in October and there was a, a young a young lady she's maybe 10 years old or so um, and she stayed after to talk with me and that was one of the situations where I, I could tell she was with her dad. It was very sweet. Um, and uh, he had brought her to to come hear me talk about mountain lions. And I don't know that she necessarily had a, a bunch of questions, but her dad wanted me to talk with her. And I effectively, in my mind anyway, said everybody else who had wanted to talk to me, because there were a few other people who had kind of stuck around, and I wanted to make sure that she got everything out of the conversation that she wanted. Um you know, and she was a young woman and, and, you know, growing up and wanted to be a scientist. And, um, and those are the kinds of, of situations where I try to make sure that I focus on, you know, making sure that she gets everything that she can get out of it. Because if I had just answered a couple of questions and said, okay, nice, you know, thanks for coming. Like what kind of a experience is that? That's not very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I try to make sure that I, I see you know, see those kinds of, of things in other people, make sure that everybody kind of gets what they need. Yeah, and I, I don't want to kind of put a gendered lens on that that talk in Pennsylvania, but do you feel that part of your role is being a visible role model and uh, female leader within the STEM sector? You know, I've never seen myself that way, no. Um, like I said, I, I think the the bulk of like kind of what drives me to do it is because I really like it. Um, and I really do like, um, so it, it is super selfish for that reason. I really like doing it. Um, but also because I, I, I feel like I have something to say and if people are willing to listen, that's fantastic. Um, and then if we can make a connection and I can, um, I guess get people to kind of, um, envision things or come to an under an understanding that they didn't have prior to talking to me, whatever that understanding or that truth is that they've, you know, kind of been able to arrive at. That's, that's really what I'm looking for. So I haven't really thought about it a whole lot as far as being a, a role model, though I will say, um, anytime I can, I do try to make sure that, um, kids in particular get my time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like I, I don't think I've said no at all to going to classrooms and stuff. Um, I think our, I think the next generation of, of scientists um, is going to have to get us out of the <laughs> world that we've gotten ourselves into. Yeah. Um, so I am all about, um, I'm all about supporting that. And I, and I know from like when I was a little kid, we had a lot of like symposia and um, you know, and, and people in science and conservation and stuff coming and talk to us. Um, and I know that those were pretty foundational, I think for me too. So not that I think I'm going to be like that for everybody, but even if it's one, one person, you know, makes that connection and kind of sees something that I said or did or an experience that I had and wants to do that, um, then, then I think that would be really rewarding to know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask as well about, um, 
and, and the answer to this may just be a point blank no, but do you feel like bravery or courage have played a role at all, whether that's in kind of a physical sense in terms of the field work that you've taken on or whether it's in a more metaphorical sense in terms of getting up on a stage and speaking in front of large audiences? Um, I would say that it probably does, but I don't feel particularly brave. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't feel like I'm, I'm any more brave or courageous than, than anyone else. Um, so while I think it probably does take a little bit of of that, I don't. Um, I don't really. I, like I said, you know, to be to be brave, there has to be a little bit of fear, right? And or to be courageous, you have to have a little bit of fear. And I'm not. Um, I, I don't feel particularly brave. I guess. Um, so maybe maybe it's there, and I just am ignoring it. <laughs> Um, so I think that almost brings me to to the end of my questions. I wanted to close by asking what you've got coming up in 2018 that you're excited about, whether that's kind of a big research question that you're going to tackle or whether it's a trip somewhere. Um, but if there's something that you wanted to cover that we haven't touched on as well, then please do please do bring that up. Yeah, so um, in 2018, right away, I get to kick off the new year in Antarctica. Um, I'll be heading to the Antarctic Peninsula on January 6th. And so I will be um, in Antarctica with Oceanides, One Ocean Expeditions, um, with funding from the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition and Hogwarts Running Club. So it's this really kind of cool coordination between a bunch of different organizations that help me get get down there. Um, so I'll be... <clears throat> working with uh, Oceanides to do some penguin counting. I'll be um, hopefully making some observations of, of seals in the Weddell Sea, which is an area I've never been to. Um, uh, so I'll be doing research, it's the long and the short of it, uh, for basically the month of, of January. Um, so that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. And that'll also provide a little bit more of the ground validation that we talked about a little bit earlier, um, just to kind of gain a little bit more context and understanding about um, you know, what we might expect when we're looking at the seals from the high resolution imagery. Uh, and then I'm going to a conference in June in Switzerland to present some of this of these, you know, these data sets, this, these results. And then I really like, we need to get going on papers. <laughs> <laughs> if, my, if my colleagues are listening to me, they're like, yeah. Um, so we're, we're basically just finishing up the first full, um, I get not really, it's not a census yet, but kind of a yes, no, do you see seals um, around the entire continent? We're just finishing that up right now. Um, and so for the first time, we will have a full habitat suitability map, basically, and presence absence map of where seals are around Antarctica. And then from there, hopefully, we'll be able to answer some of those more interesting questions that I mentioned earlier, like, you know, how many are there? And, and why are they in certain locations and not in others? And could we predict, potentially, how their populations may change um, as the sea ice extent changes or as other environmental um, things change through time? Um, so that's that's what I'm looking forward to this year is writing a lot of papers, <laughs> but starting the year out with, uh, with a, with a nice trip down to Antarctica. That'll be, that'll be a lot of fun. Nice. And that trip to Antarctica in just a few days, that like these trips are a long time in the planning, right? Yeah, this one was really, in my opinion, unique. Um, so typically when you go down with the national science foundation, um, I, I've gone down to McMurdo. And so usually that takes 
months, if not years of planning. Um, this one was a little bit different. I, I was um, contacted for an opportunity to put in a proposal about a year ago. Um, and the the funding agencies or funding organizations wanted to do something right away. And they wanted, um, you know, kind of to build on an existing project, which was was perfect for me because I had this existing project on Waddell Seals. Um, and certainly I, I could do some field work, but I hadn't written that into my NSF proposal. Um, uh, because largely the, the group that is helping us with the ground data is already there. So there's no reason for me to go down to McMurdo. There's already a, a group that's collaborating with us to help us out there. So I said, okay, well, we could extend this a little bit and, you know, check out the, the wet LC. And so I was able to um, connect with lots of different collaborators to make this happen in a relatively short amount of time. I would say it probably took, still took several months, but not like a full year like it normally does, um, which I think is another fun thing to kind of remember about science in general is, um, you know, being a, being a good collaborator, um, which again, I'm not saying I'm necessarily a good collaborator, but I've been really fortunate to know a lot of people, um, you know, and kind of staying in touch with people and is really helpful because that's how, basically how I was able to get, um, this research coordinated. Um, really fortunate to know, um, a lot of different groups and, um, able to take advantage of the situation. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really fortunate situation to be in. Okay. That's awesome. Well, um, wishing you the best of luck with all your trips and your, you. your research and paper writing this year. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to pull out or touch on? No, I don't think so. I, I really appreciated the, the talk about science communication though. I think, um, I guess maybe the one thing I want to say about that though is, um, I, I had a change of mind. I used to think that all scientists should communicate their work. Um, and through discussions with lots of people and through experience, I totally disagree with that now. I do think that there are people who are good at communicating science and there are people who either, you know, don't want to or, you know, just you know, they just don't want to. And I don't think everyone should have to do that. Um, and so I think focusing on the people who really know how to communicate science. It's a, it's an art, man. It is <laughs> the people who do it well, do it so well. Um, and it's so enjoyable to listen to them and you learn so much. Um, and so I think, you know, really holding those people up, bolstering those people up and, and making sure their voices are heard, um, is really critical, particularly in this day and age when there's a term that we have the term alternative facts now, and that really bothers me. So, um, I think we need we need people who are effective at communicating, um, and we need them their voices. I think now more than ever. Was that was there a particular conversation that changed your mind about that, or a particular experience, or was it just kind of um, an evolving thought process? No, I think it was it was a pretty quick change. I will say. Um, I remember just kind of watching and listening a few conversations on on Twitter, and I thought, you know what, you're right. Like, not everybody wants to do this. Not every like scientists. We're not we're not trained to do this, right? We're we're trained to to be scientists. And so when you have um, scientists who are also effective communicators, I feel like that's a really to me. I feel like it's a, a you know a really unique skill set because um, it's just so counter to our traditional training. Um, I'm hoping that you know more people will be interested in doing science communication and are willing to put in the extra effort, but it is extra effort. Like it's not just, it's not like you can just, you know, take a, a seminar for a half a day and become a, a science communicator, you know, it's, it takes time and it does take a lot of work. Um, so 
yeah, but I think those those kinds of people are super valuable right now. And yeah, we really I, I hope people listen to these kinds of science communicators more. And um, sorry, I just want to drill down into this a little bit more before we finish. I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, you run the very successful Cougar or Not hashtag on Twitter. Um, and, you know, we've spoken about a lot of the other channels and platforms that you use. Do you feel like there's a particular kind of communication form or media that's going to be import- more important or grow in importance over the next couple of years? Or do you think it's kind of the places where we're at right now, which is Twitter and Facebook and other social media and kind of online news outlets? Um, I have no idea. I honestly don't. Cause I feel like, you know, every time I get used to a particular thing, then something changes. So I feel like there's probably a platform or a, a mode of communication or something that will change probably in the next, you know, few years, probably for now, my favorite, I love, I love communicating on Twitter. It's great. Um, and I think it's primarily just because I, I, I don't see myself as a really good writer, <laughs> I can, I mean, I, I write scientific articles, right? But there's just, there's some people who do such an eloquent job of writing, you know, really great articles. Um, so I do well with the shortness, you know, the the uh, the brevity of um, Twitter. So that's kind of my favorite. And I've thought about like, you know, YouTube and stuff. But again, there's so many people who do such a good job. It's like, you know, I just, I'm going to let them do that because they're so good at it. <laughs> um, so uh yeah, so I, I think for now, probably those are, you know, obviously Twitter is my favorite, but I'm sure that there will be something will change in the next few years and we'll be talking about a different platform or a different way of communicating, communicating science um, that just hasn't been thought up yet. Well, I'm probably biased, but I'm hoping that podcasts are going to play a more important role. <laughs> I hope so too, seriously, because I just, yeah, like I said, I'm, I am super verbose. I love talking. So it's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I love, I love, and I love talking to people. And, um, so I, I agree. I, I hope, um, and I hope, and I, I honestly hope that scientists are, people become more interested in scientists. I, I sometimes think, and whether this is true or not, I don't know, but like, I think sometimes people have this, um, perception of scientists that, you know, were not very interesting and man, is that like everyone else I work with is like, Oh my God, you're the most interesting person I know. Like every single one of them. So I hope scientists kind of come even more to the forefront of, of communication and are the subjects of podcasts and interviews and stuff because everyone has a really interesting story to tell. Well, that's definitely the idea here, I think, as amply demonstrated by you over the course of this conversation. Thank you. Behind, <laughs> behind all the conservation and uh, wildlife work that goes on, there are amazing people with incredible stories to tell, not least of which the scientists who... Uh, discovering so many amazing things that even a few years ago we didn't know and that I've been very surprised by my conversations so far with with conservation scientists on this podcast so I think that's a really good note to end on that uh, that's yeah that's quite poignant so yeah thank you so much I really enjoyed that conversation wonderful thank you I did too it was it was wonderful I appreciate being on cool thanks Michelle that was amazing thank you <laughs> thank you I really hope you enjoyed that conversation And you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.